I remember getting a call from my buddy who I met in Nashville, a guy called Ben Johnson, who I still work with now. Uh, and he said, hey, man, Charlie Puth has recorded our song, uh, Patient. And I was like, Patient? Which song is that? And I had to go back in my folder because I it was like, I hardly even remember writing it at the time. And I went through and it was, it was a quick little song we wrote about an hour and a half before I jumped on a plane to head back to London. It was like a very last minute song. That song really changed my life when Charlie Puth recorded it. It was like all of a sudden, every door in the industry burst open as soon as I found out that he recorded that, that song of mine. Hello and welcome to the Keys Coach podcast. My name's Adam and this is the podcast where I sit down with piano, keys and synth players and talk about their life in music. This is another bonus episode where we chat with someone from another aspect of the music industry. And today we're talking all things songwriting with Fraser Churchill. He's an English Canadian singer, top liner and guitarist, and he's one of Nashville's most in-demand songwriters. He's written for artists like Lucas Graham, Walker Hayes, Flo Rider, Ronan Keating and Emily Sande, amongst many others. In this conversation, we talk about many different aspects of Fraser's work, right the way through from how he got started writing songs, to moving to LA, to getting his first song cut by another artist, and we do a deep dive on how the song Baby I'll Wait came to be on Michael Bublé's latest album. As well as writing songs for other artists, Fraser also releases music under his own name, and his latest single, Fever, is coming out on October the 6th. I've put a link to pre-save that song in the episode description. Go and check it out. Before we dive into the conversation, thank you so much once again to everyone that's got in touch about the podcast. It's great to hear that people are enjoying these episodes. If you're getting a lot out of these conversations, it would be amazing if you could leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This would really help other people to discover the podcast and grow our community. Okay, let's dive in. Here is the conversation I had with the awesome Fraser Churchill. Fraser, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's really great to see you. Uh, you're back in the UK at the moment. Great to see you too, man. Yes, I am back in the UK. I'm back for one month over from Nashville. Nice. Is it? Is it good to be home? Honestly, it is so nice to be home. I've lived in America for six years now and all my family are over here in the UK. So I when I come back, I try and do a good chunk of time. So I'm here for a month. Have you got lots of um, lots of nice plans while you're back? I have definitely have some plans. I'm I'm mainly seeing family, but I'm trying to sneak in a few sessions, songwriting sessions, maybe a, a, a little okay. gig here or there, just a couple of oh. things to keep keep the uh, keep everything flowing. You know, keep practicing. Well, you have to let me know if you're doing a gig. I'll definitely um definitely come see it while you're here. I should say to everyone listening that Fraser and I caught up the other day because Fraser came in to run this amazing masterclass at the music college I teach at. So uh, yeah, it was wicked. And um, I know the students really enjoyed it. And I hope that, um, yeah, we're going to have a pretty cool conversation now about uh, songwriting yes. and what it means. So Fraser, when, when you meet someone just like, I don't know, out and about and they're like, oh, what do you do? How do you explain what you do? Because I know it's super varied and you work in lots of different musical worlds. So how, how do you explain it? Oh, that's a really good question. It's funny because, you know, you you people introduce you as different things. And I've found that the best way to introduce myself is singer songwriter, because I feel like that just covers everything. It's like, are you an artist? Are you a songwriter? Are you a producer? There's so yeah, many yeah. like ways of um, being labeled and everything's so specific. It's like, oh, even in the songwriting industry, it's right. like, are you a top liner? I mean, that's the, my least favorite favorite word, but I, I like to just think of myself as a singer songwriter. And I think that that means that you write songs, you play gigs, you write songs for other people, 
you put out your own songs. It's like, I think it covers everything, you know. It covers all bases. And you're a guitarist, aren't you? And you but I know you mentioned the other day that you play some keys as well. I mean, oof, I, I play a little bit of keys. I can get away with like padding some chords behind my guitar playing and moving a MIDI around. But because my dad, Pete Churchill, is such like a, a legendary piano player, I've tried to stay away from calling myself a, <laughs> yeah, a piano yeah, player, yeah. you know. Pete yeah. is, um, I, I don't know if Pete's episode on the podcast will be out by the time this one is, but he's done an episode mm. and that was very, very cool. So, um, okay. Yeah. So he's on, he's been on here before. And you've kind of got a completely different kind of career to your dad because you've gone, you've gone down what I would say is like a really kind of commercial music kind mm. of route. I think one of the really cool things about the way you've kind of structured your career is you've just been consistent throughout the whole of your your time writing you were saying the other day you've written around 200 songs per year i mean that is just so prolific it's a lot of songs I know. <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to look back i definitely don't remember them all i definitely haven't recorded them all but you know it's and sometimes it's only like a chorus or a verse chorus but yeah. i do it nine to five you know monday to friday so just like you know i treat it as going to work every morning and you get up and you write a song you know that's the way i kind of i've looked at it amazing i think i think it'd be really cool to just chat about your first song you wrote do you remember when that was do you actually know what the first song you wrote oh, was can you remember you know i think i do i think i was 12 and uh it was a song i wrote on guitar and it must have been about like the first crush i ever had on okay. a girl i think that might have been it and i remember writing a really bad song um, because I think it was like, I don't think she, I think I, I, I wanted to be with her and she didn't love me back. And it was one of those types of sad, very sad acoustic songs that I've wrote. And that was, I, I, I still remember it actually, but I'm, I'm not going to sing it. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we won't, I won't make you sing the first song you've oh, ever wrote. Thanks. Appreciate that. But that's, you must have known early on that you wanted to go down the kind of writing route and that be a part of your life. Well, I wasn't sure to be honest with you. So my, my mom and dad put me in drum lessons right. pretty early on. So that was kind of my intro to music was drums. And I was eight, I think, and I did my first drum lesson. And I did drum lessons for 10 years all through um, school. So eight until 18. And I, I thought I wanted to be a drummer. And I actually thought I wanted to be a jazz drummer because my dad like, like got, bought me a drum kit and uh, cymbals and got me drum lessons first with a guy called Mikel Acciaioli and it was a lot of like percussive and yeah. groovy stuff like that singing grooves before I put them down on drums I would right. sing them and internalize them nice. and then um, I remember having um, lessons with uh, Trevor Tompkins Dave Hassel a lot of the the jazz drum guys on some of the, the summer the summer schools and I'd come along and eventually dad got me in to do like some assistant tutoring on the on the jazz drumming course so I was very much focused actually as a drummer for the first right uh for for like 10 years before so when did the guitar come in then because that's primarily what you do now that's primarily what I do now um the guitar so my mom plays guitar okay. and um my dad used to run choirs so I love to sing and he still runs choirs I loved to sing and it's hard to accompany yourself singing on drums <laughs> people do it yeah. but I used to think hmm I should maybe I should like learn a couple of songs on the guitar so my mom showed me how to play uh play her guitar and uh when I I think I started playing guitar when I was 11 or 12 and I only did one year of guitar lessons at school and it was literally like here's how you play it like simple g d c 
um, E minor, like yeah. four chords. And that was kind of all you need to get started. And uh, I remember I would see my dad every other weekend and he would teach me a couple of things on guitar. Um, but it was really secondary to like drumming. Um, but right. he would throw in a couple of two five ones here and there, teach me some yeah. jazzy chords, you know, and that was the intro to to picking up the guitar. That's so cool. I wonder if like all of that, that drumming, like learning drums and thinking about grooves has like impacted quite a lot of the way you think about music now. I wonder if had you gone straight in on the guitar, um, maybe you wouldn't be so kind of because I know so much of the music you write is really groovy and has really kind of like interesting feels. I wonder if that comes from kind of those that early thing of being on the drums. I think even going back to when I was like eight or nine and I was internalizing the drum grooves before playing them um, and having to sing them before being allowed yeah. to play them. Uh, and then also, you know, if your right hand is playing the hi-hat, your right hand is also keeping time on, an, on a guitar, right? A guitar, so yeah. I figured out there's this real relationship between drums and guitar and that percussive style that I've, I picked up was definitely through playing drums first. I think drums are such a good first instrument. Yeah, a few people have said that on this podcast actually, that like drums is just such a great way in. Um, yeah. Because I it kind of like takes out all of the chords, it takes out all of that complicated kind of harmony stuff and goes right back to like groove and feel yep. and, 100%. you know. You can apply drumming to every single instrument because you should be yeah. able to play in time, you know, and that's what it, yeah. that's what you're doing. And you have to find your feel and your pocket and your groove. And that's, mm. that's all kind of learnt through picking up and playing the drums. I think that's just such a good foundation. Yeah. How did you find going to study? Because you went on to like study, um, you went to Lippa, didn't you? And, and, yeah. and did like the course there. How did you find that? So I remember being 18 and thinking about uni and it was definitely between, do I do jazz drums? Do I do popular music? Do I study guitar? Do I do, at one point I thought maybe even sound engineering. Some, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew mm. I wanted it to be in music. Um, I'm, I mm. remember researching some of the more popular music courses. I, went, I, I looked up BIM, I, I heard about Lippa, and it was just a last minute decision. Like, mm, I don't know if I want to go down the jazz route um, I feel like maybe I should go it's slightly more contemporary and then you know it doesn't mean that I can't use my jazz influences but I ended up going to going down the lipper route um and I tried to get in actually and I didn't get in first time so I did a popular music and sound technology diploma at Lippa um for one year and then re-auditioned um as a guitarist and got in for the three-year degree after that wicked yeah that sounds that sounds really cool i mean were you did you meet lots of people to play with was it you know how how was the experience of going there and and and, and, yeah. and creating music and playing it was such a cool environment so they i think there were like five guitarists five bass players five drummers five on each instrument and then there was a sound technology course um with the george martin studio so it was paul mccartney's music school um and the idea behind it was um, entertainment and those who make entertainment possible. So you would find even like lighting and yeah. stage design and dance. It's like everything that puts on a show yeah. um, and management course, you know, it's like all of that. So um, it was a very inspiring environment where I finally feel like I met like-minded people. It sounds and very creative. 
Yeah, it was very creative. And I remember there was a songwriting course that was part of the, the music degree and we had to write a song a week. Yeah. And that was when I started to um, just get the ball rolling and yeah. start writing a lot of bad songs until they slowly started getting better, you know. Fantastic. You even said, you told me the other day that you, you actually played some of your songs to Paul McCartney. They invited you to a masterclass. That sounds pretty cool. It, it was pretty cool, yeah. So that was the final year. Um, a handful of songwriting students got the chance to do a one-on-one -on -one with Paul McCartney. And he came in at the end. And uh, I remember being as prepared as I possibly could be. I wrote out my lyrics with the chords above the lyrics. <laughs> and I sat down and I played him my, like, two or three songs and he gave me feedback he had his piano there he had a guitar he had his a Hofner bass and he kind of played along and made some lyrical suggestions gave me some you know advice yeah. and uh I, I remember asking him what I should do I said no Paul I've just finished four years at Lippo what, now what and he was like you should do what we did the Beatles did you should go we went to Germany so you know you should just go and play loads of gigs <laughs> so I was like, all right, time to go play loads of gigs. And, and that was it. I went, I moved to London and played like four nights a week in anywhere that would, that would, uh, pay, book me, pay and me. And were you playing your own whatever. songs at those gigs? Were you playing kind of your own material? So that's an interesting question because, you know, at the time I thought I'm only going to play original music. Right. But the thing about playing original music is that you don't get paid to play original music 95% of the time. So I found myself thinking like, okay, well, I'll do one original gig a week and I'll find those, that original circuit that everybody did, like Ed Sheeran and James Morrison and Adele. It's like this, you, you know, everybody does these, like the London singer songwriter circuit and you just cut your teeth and learn how to talk to the audiences. And then I found these just little tiny bar gigs, restaurant gigs, pub gigs, hotel gigs anywhere that would pay me to play. And those were like, those were cover gigs. Um, but I just remembered thinking the two options are either do that or do a job that isn't music. So I was willing to just, you know, do, do cover gigs. And I'm really happy that I did so, so much of that looking back because it's where you do your 10,000 hours. Mm. You know? And did you find that playing that many covers and learning songs written by other people kind of really helped your own writing? It's a good question. Yeah, I honestly think that when you play hits, you like at four nights a week for five years, yeah. uh, you learn subconsciously, you learn like how to write a hit in some ways. You kind of learn which bits get the crowd going. Why does that chorus feel like it lifts so much? How important is a sing-along section? You know, all those things yeah. that you learn and you don't even realize you're learning while you're doing it. And then when it finally comes to sitting down, writing a song, for somebody that needs a big song like that, or maybe you want to put a song like that on your album, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, correlation between those thing those two things, and I didn't realize it at the time. Um, so you must have been, you must have been doing all these gigs, and then you're obviously writing in your spare time as well. So kind of your your day would look like maybe writing during the day and then gigging in the evening. Is that kind of right? Yep, that's right. I met a couple of friends from Lippa who also came down to London um, and I would just find people who are interested in writing songs and I would find people who are interested in recording songs, you know, so let's say that I could sing and I could play guitar, but I had no idea how to use Pro Tools right. or Logic. 
I would team up with somebody who did that. I teamed up with a buddy of mine called uh, Chris Hewitt. He was also in, uh, he was on the engineering uh, producer program at Lippa and we locked in and we did an album at Lippa of my original stuff. And then we kept writing together and I would try and get in a room with him as much as I possibly could because I found someone who was the yin to my yang, you know, the person who could fill in all the gaps that was where I felt like I was slacking. He could um, come in and help me and we would try and get a finished product every day or and let's chip away at like a this and who knows what we're trying to do. We're just trying to create songs every single day and make them as good as possible. So we did that for years. Yeah, I think that's well, it's like you talk about the 10,000 hours thing. It's like that. I think that's obviously where you just did that because it was that. How did you stay motivated during that time? Because I think one of the things people often find with being creative is that you can kind of you can kind of lose your momentum or you have like writer's block or you can think, oh, this idea isn't very good. Or And it's quite hard. to. It can be quite hard to stay motivated in those times to get up the next day. And then it's a bit like going to the gym, right? You're always happy when you're at the gym, but kind of like getting to the gym is half the process, right? Getting to the gym is definitely half the process. But you know what it was, was a lot of frustration that I was picking up from doing cover gigs. I remember just thinking, man, this is this is rough. And I used to find them, although they were there were some rewarding qualities of doing functions, I used to think, man, I just hope I'm, I, I wanna figure out just another way of making money in this industry. Yeah. I love music so much and I love playing gigs and, and I'm lucky enough to be making a full-time living doing functions right now, but one day i'd like to find another revenue stream in the music industry and there's music everywhere and it's got to be done and i'm sure there's a way of figuring this out and i just saw that avenue as songwriting and i just thought you know i feel like i can write good music but i haven't figured out how to make money from my songs yet um it's surely it's just a matter of time and i also just loved writing songs like that's made me so happy to write songs and I and I felt like you know at the end of the day I would have something that was there that existed and I could build something so every day I would add another song to this folder of songs and it was growing and then when I was playing functions I'd you know I'd get 150 quid and then by Wednesday I'd spent that on food and and I was left with nothing to show for that time I put into it because the only thing I, I, you know, you do get experience and you do get better at your instrument, but I just felt like I was kind of in this circle that I couldn't get out of. So anyways, writing songs was really therapeutic and it also gave me something else to focus on that I loved that I thought could eventually, eventually be another revenue stream for me in the industry. Fantastic. That's such a good way of thinking about it. And I think that's, I, I don't know everyone necessarily has that kind of realization as early on necessarily as you did. I think mm. some people do get kind of stuck in that kind of like you say, and that's such a great way of describing it. You know, you give your time up and then suddenly the money you've earned has gone by kind of halfway through the week. And you're, whereas yeah. with a song, you've, you've always got that kind of asset there and it and exists it. and it has a life beyond the time you initially, it begins working for you in other different ways. And I think it's, it's interesting you were thinking in such a business way mm. um, in that, uh, that kind of early, early stage. Do, do you know where that kind uh, of came from? I don't know. I mean, I don't know where it came from. I think it just came from the frustration. It was purely frustration of like, yeah. by Wednesday, I had nothing to show for all that work I had to put in, you know? Yeah. And I thought, God, I put on all the, the blood, sweat and tears over the weekend. And now I'm exactly where I was yeah. before I played that gig. Whereas at least when I'd write a song, I'd come away with that feeling of joy and accomplishment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, 
I loved that feeling. And I'd also been, you know, Guy Chambers gave a masterclass at Lippa. Mark Ronson gave a masterclass at Lippa. I just had heard these other songwriters talk about their process and where, where it brought them one day. And it, and the, all the different places that you can, a song can end up. There's so many homes for a song. You know, you can release it yourself. You can give it to somebody else. It can end up on a video game or a film or a commercial. It's like that. That just sounded so um, interesting. Yeah, and that's what motivated you. So, what would you say was kind of like the next development for you? Because you you weren't you were kind of writing songs for yourself up until this point. So, when did it begin to transition that you thought, oh, maybe other people could have this song? Um, that's a good question. I think, uh, my goal was always to write songs for me. And, um, that was, that always just found, I found that really interesting was to like write a song that I, that I, about a subject that connected with me that I could release. So that was always my goal originally was just write a song for me that could go on my album, uh, and I could put it out. And eventually you just get so many songs that and you have such a big that pile of songs we were talking about they just start it grows and it grows and it grows and eventually you just start thinking like i've got all these songs left over i wonder if there's a home for this song that isn't going on my album you know and how would i begin to get that in the hands of the right person you know um and i'd heard about publishers and i knew that that's what they did a publishing company their job is to help your songs find a home and help your song make money. And I thought, well, well, I can put it out on mine and I can make an album, but I've got enough for like 10 albums here. So surely there's yeah. got to be some, some other avenues. There might be some left yeah, over. Yeah. yeah. So that was <laughs> yeah. when I kind of started thinking about that. And up, yeah, I mean, up until my first cut, honestly, with another artist, I rem I, that was the kind of first realization. Wow. Someone else wants to record one of my songs. Cool. Let's let him record it and see what it sounds like. Can you just explain to the listener what a cut is? Because that's kind of like quite an yes. industry kind of term, isn't it? It is an industry term, yeah. So I guess it comes from where they literally used to cut um, the tape back in the day. I think that's where it comes from. But the industry, I guess that's what people have say over in America is, um, oh, uh, we got to get this song cut. <laughs> so meaning we got to get this song recorded. Yeah. So that's what it means. Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, at what point did you move, because you obviously moved to America, you moved to LA. Um, when did that happen? And that must have been such a huge thing to kind of take everything and just literally move yourself to America to try and to try and make this happen, you know? Yeah, I mean, so I had gone to an American school in Surrey growing up. And I remember going to Lip after that in Liverpool. And it was a real culture shock. And I always had a soft spot for America. My mom's Canadian and all my friends were American growing up. So I always kind of, looked at America as somewhere that might feel like home. And then, so I remember starting doing trips to America to write just because I felt really frustrated with London. Like I had given everything to London for five years, four nights a week, knocking on Sony, Universal, Warner. Like I was trying to meet these people who could get my music to the next level. And it was just such a closed door policy, I found. Um, other people have had different luck in London, but I really was having no luck. That's interesting. And yeah, it is interesting. And I, I still don't understand completely. Maybe it's, it might be a cultural thing. Maybe my music wasn't right for, for the sort of thing they were looking for. But I started to do trips over to Nashville and LA to simply write songs over there and meet, meet my like-minded people and publishers. And 
immediately on my first trip it was like man you gotta come in here and sing us some songs we love your music like I, you gotta be here your music's amazing and it was like this this kind of positivity that i hadn't ever experienced before and uh it was just addictive you know yeah. addicting and i just couldn't help but keep going back so yeah i was, did three trips um a year for like two and a half years and i finally ended up moving to la because um i remember getting a call from my buddy who i met in nashville a guy called ben johnson who i still work with now uh, and he said hey man charlie puth has recorded our song uh patient and i was like patient which song is that and i had to go back in my folder because i it was like i hardly even remember writing it at the time i went through and it was it was a quick little song we wrote about an hour and a half before i jumped on a plane to head back to london it was like a very last minute song um but at the time charlie pooth had just released his song attention and it was on like top 10 on us radio it had had like 500 million streams in six months and it was like that song really changed my life when charlie puth recorded it it was like all of a sudden every door in the industry burst open and uh wow. i remember going and doing 27 publishing meetings in two weeks uh as soon as i found out that he recorded that that song wow. that'd be cool to just break that down a little bit for everyone listening so your your initial meetings that you went to in la how did you fix those up because i think that can seem mm. quite unachievable for some people so like, oh, how do i go and yep. who want how do i find people that want to write songs so maybe you could give some advice to people that are listening on how they might be able to do that and how you did it of course um so i have i have had a few managers in london um and it was one manager i started working with in london who um was the one he, he was one of the people who first suggested i should move uh, i should go to nashville and write songs in nashville and see just what it's like because the quality of songwriting over there if you just felt like i would fit in with this, this, the way people write songs over there so um he was the one who first got me going back and forth and um and then he also um had a lot of these contacts himself but um still the doors wouldn't open having the contacts is is part of it but it's like they have to accept the meeting and course, most of these yeah, publishing companies will won't reply to an email unless you you know they're they've got something to meet about it's really one of the one of those situations so i remember he uh when i called him and said hey man charlie puth has recorded my song and that was a real pivot moment it was like why don't we do a bunch of meetings in the states and in stockholm and in new york and in uh, and in London and just meet everybody and um, tell them that you're interested in writing songs for other people as another as another um, arm of your career. So these were these were meetings that was specifically focused towards you becoming a songwriter rather than becoming an artist. They were publishing. Yeah, so they were publishing meetings. So I guess, you know, every every artist that's most artists that release music um have publishing deals and like artists that are getting radio play and uh, so if you sign a publishing deal it can be you can be an artist but you can also write for other people or you can just do songs for tv and film and commercials there are uh, maybe you um there's just so there's a lot of different um reasons why you would sign a publishing deal so it doesn't necessarily have to pigeonhole you into just writing songs for other people um but because that was what i had had the most that one song yeah um 
then that was where all of a sudden that little glimpse of mm. success I'd all of a sudden had in this industry. Um, that was the thing that we decided to focus on in these meetings to, to just, you know, give me the best shot at like getting the right, the right kind of deal. Mm. Um, maybe they'd help me move to America and they ended yeah. up helping me get a visa. Wow. Um, okay. All of those things. It was like, why don't we use this as a bit of a, a calling, calling card. card? Yeah. hundred percent. Exactly. So when you say exactly. a meeting, because um, I think this is so interesting because it's kind of like the inner workings of the industry that we kind of, you, right. you, they're sometimes shrouded in mystery. So I just, it's kind of just so interesting to hear. What happens in a meeting? Are you, do you literally go in with your guitar and play them songs? And how do you choose which songs to play them out of the 600 you've probably written by this yeah. point or 800? I don't know. Oh, it's, that's the hardest part about these meetings, right? And at first you're really nervous, but at the by after you've done a bunch of them, you get more into it. But it depends who you're meeting. So in Nashville, right, you bring in a guitar a lot of the times. Okay. And it's pretty common to whip out a guitar saying, hey, check this chorus out or check this song out. What do you think? And they'll go, hey, yeah, this could be for so-and-so. Um, you know, Keith Urban's looking for a song or Carrie Underwood needs a soulful ballad. Let's send it to her. Do you have a recording of it? Um, I found that most meetings though you would go in and you'd have maybe five songs um on your uh iphone and you plug in and the meetings are basically you saying hey i've got five songs i think uh to which show show my songwriting capabilities um here's one that could be that's me singing and playing this is me as an artist this is what who i am check this one out and then the second one would be i think this one could work for um, a male uh, pop artist. This one could work for a female grunge singer songwriter, and this one could be a DJ track, and this one might work really well for a TV and film. So I went in trying to show my the, these publishers that I I was versatile. Okay. Um, and that was kind of my angle. And do they like versatile like, songwriters, or do they kind of want to go, oh, this guy does this, and this girl mm, does that? And I think it depends if you're going in saying, uh, um, if you're going in for for a record label meeting, I think it's good to have like a really specific sound. Um, but I think if you're going into a publishing meeting um, as a songwriter, I think it's so important to show um, diversity in your music mm. um, because one day they might want to send you in to like a, do a David Guetta camp and the next day they're sending you to work with Camila Cabello and the next day they're sending you to work with Adam Lambert, who's like the lead singer of Queen, and all of a sudden you have to do something that's Make completely work, different. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Yeah, you signed a deal with Warner Chapel, is that right? That's right. Yeah, and and then obviously various doors and opportunities opened up, and you mentioned about um, songwriting camps. Could you just explain to the listener what a songwriting camp is? So yeah, I mean, you, so an A and R from a record label or a publishing company, A uh, and R stands for Artist and Repertoire, and their jobs are to sign people. Like an, and um, put together an album, right? So let's say there's different types of camps. So an artist might be an, there might be an artist focused camp and it's like Justin Bieber has to release an album in nine months from now. We don't have enough songs. So we're gonna hand select our favorite producers um, and songwriters and instrumentalists. And we're gonna throw them all into a room together and we're gonna have them write uh, two songs a day for five days. Um, and we're going to listen to everything. And that's a way of um, the A&Rs um, putting their stamp of creativity into the song uh, without getting involved in the actual songwriting. Right. 
And um, it helps just the music stay focused for one uh, particular album that's being written for. The other side of the, the coin, which is um, more of a, a, a pitch camp, and that's, there's a famous one that's going on right now in, in Vegas, and it happens every single year. Warner Chapel um, uh, put on uh, a massive songwriting camp in Vegas for 10 days. And there's about 150 songwriters, producers, artists um, from all over the world. And we get split up into groups of three to five, sometimes six. And you have to write uh, the best song possible and you have to record it. And in 10 days, there's something like 450 songs every, wow. every year. And the A&R's jobs are to put together the schedules, so who works with who, and then the A&Rs will then help all of those songs find a home. Uh, so if it's pitching it to the next, you know, on, to land on an album or it's trying to get it on a commercial, um, it's really up to what that song sounds like. So that's the A&R's job is to set up these big camps and then help the music find a home. That's so cool. I mean, they must be really fun. And obviously you're going into a space with people maybe you haven't met before, I imagine, um, and yeah. you haven't worked with before and you might not necessarily know their music or or that kind of thing. So just from all your experience doing those things, what are like some top tips for just tr um, managing to emerge with a song at the end of the day? Like, yeah. What oh. are, I mean, and they probably, all these writing sessions probably work differently. Yeah, it's tough, you know, from my experience, you know, there's nothing worse than coming out of a songwriting session, a six hour songwriting session with no song. So that happens a lot though. It really does. You can't always come up with a song every single day. And sometimes you get the pairings wrong and there's too many ideas or not enough ideas, too much ego, not enough ego, you know? Right. So little tricks I've learned is I got a big list in my back pocket of titles. Um, I might sit around and come up with some like whole choruses, which I think are great, which I can bring into the room if no, if there aren't any sparks flying right away. Um, producers will often bring in tracks that are nearly finished, like radio ready tracks that sound amazing. And they look at the the singers or the songwriters to kind of come in and with a cool title and, and come up with a chorus and then build some verses and pre-chorus and all that and around it. So there, there are definitely tricks that help you um, make sure that you come out with the best song you possibly can at the end of the day. But um, especially if you're flying all the way to Vegas and, you know, they put you up in a hotel room, it's like, okay, I'm going to do my best uh, to get enough sleep. Yeah. <laughs> not, not drink too much. Of <laughs> uh, you know, think of some really cool ideas. Find out who's looking. Every morning in these camps, there's a meeting and a record label come and it's a different label every meeting every morning and they'll um, do a little presentation of like who's looking for songs what their next single is what's the song to beat right now what's this artist going through um are they in love are they out of love uh all those little things that help you come up with like the best possible song i mean i remember on the justin bieber camp it was like justin's with Haley; he's very much in love right now um, there needs to be some sort of like religious angle but not too in your face um so john bellion wrote holy right for justin bieber and then when i finally heard it it was like no wonder that song ended up being the one that was singled because like it's it's 
it's really unique it's soulful it's organic sonically it's different but works perfect for him um but it's also got that like religious angle and it just yeah. ticked every single box yeah. you know is there kind of like a sharing at the end of each day how do you hear what everyone's come up with or is it was it all kind of everyone's in their rooms and you know uh, yeah oh there's definitely like a bit of that it depends on the camp i've been on camps where at the end of the day you listen to every single song from okay. that day um some people like that some people don't it gets a little stressful um right you know it kind of puts a pressure on it this. does it yeah it does it puts yeah. real pressure on it definitely um sometimes you perform it live in nashville especially it's like at the end of the camps you just sit around and you sing the song um so i've done that as well and it helps you know the a &Rs are listening and mm. sometimes it's like we'll take it we'll send it right now and they'll take the song right then and there and email it straight off to the to to whoever they think the song would work for um yeah it's it is it's sometimes it gets a bit disheartening when you listen it looking looking over your shoulder in, in this other room and there's people jumping all over the place freaking out <laughs> singing singing this song pumping yeah. the air they're like we've done it we've yeah. got an amazing song and you're sitting there going oh yeah. my god scrabbling around trying to find the lyric yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah I mean, oh, man. I've heard some really interesting stories. Like there's a guy in London called Fred Ball who wrote Love on the Brain for Rihanna. And he was on the Rihanna camp. And next door, Pharrell was making blurred lines in okay. the room next door. Oh, and man. he was listening to that cowbell groove going like, how am I going to possibly top this? Yeah. We have to do something completely different. And he ended up doing like this slow 6-8 ba groovy ballad which ended up being love on the brain. But, you know, it's like there are all sorts of um, different energies and different vibes coming from every corner of these camps. And you just have to block out all the noise around you and just be as creative as you can, you know. That sounds amazing. It sounds like a really exciting kind of week. You must come away quite tired from those weeks, I imagine. Just kind oh my of like... God, yeah. So what, at what point did you move to Nashville? Is That was quite recent, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so I did three years in LA. And honestly, I found LA a little tough just because of, culturally is so different the way people write songs in la is very different um there's a real relationship between london and nashville uh you write a song a lot of singer songwriters from the uk go over to nashville and record their albums there's this thing about like live music um and after three years in la i missed that writing a song on a guitar thing i, I felt like it wasn't happening enough and starting with the title and having a little twist at the end of the chorus, all the things that I love as a songwriter, I felt like was lacking in LA. Um, although, you know, LA, the opportunities are huge and the, the bar is so high. Um, but I'm, I think I wrote 300 songs or something like that in, in LA. And at the time, none of them were getting cut. And I had like a two and a half years of like complete dry period. And it was, it was really frustrating. And I just thought, you know, maybe I have to, maybe I have to move and, and try something a little different. And every time I do a quick trip to Nashville, something really exciting would happen. Like one of those songs from the week would, would come back and I would love it or it would get cut. And then I'd go back to LA and it would be like a six month dry period. So I thought maybe I got to give Nashville a go. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, after three years, I thought it was time. And it was also like right at the end, tail end of the pandemic and Nashville's opening up because it's quite they were a little bit more relaxed and LA was just like really um it was really tough to to be social at all and I just thought right I need to I need to go to Nashville and mm. this is my time you know so interesting I went to LA in January for work and and it 
it's an interesting place, isn't it? I hadn't quite realised that it's it's LA isn't actually really a LA is like four or five different cities kind of all connected together and it's it's so spread out. And I found the fact that I guess this maybe is just America in general, but I found it really weird that you couldn't kind of like walk anywhere. That's what I kind oh, of yeah. found a bit weird, you know. Oh, uh, you know what though? Uh, America is like that, with the exception of a few major cities. Right. I feel like Nashville's the same and and it's really that's one of the things I'm I'm really miss about England is the you know you can walk everywhere yeah. in the UK and I I didn't have a car for the first like five years I lived in America I finally got a car and I'm like kicking myself you know I was Ubering and walk, trying to walk places and I'm so I'm so glad to finally have one because it's just so tough yeah um, getting about everything's so spread about spread out yeah. you know in not a huge amount of people use public transport in America as well so much particularly in those places no you know? it's funny I've still got my bus pass from my yeah. first Nashville trip and I was the only one riding the bus and people were giving me the funniest looks yeah you know? yeah yeah. Uh, and same with LA. I mean, most people don't do don't do public transportation out there either. So Nashville. So you 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 write songs at the moment. You're on Music Row. I was looking at pictures of that today. It looks absolutely incredible. It looks like so vibing. There's like bars and like loads of live music going on. It looks like such a cool place to be. It is. It is. It's it's got every publishing company on one road, pretty much, uh, and each publishing company has anywhere from five to fifty songwriters signed. And you go in every day, and you. You can work from your home studio, but they have studios and writers' rooms in every publishing house, and you can you yeah. There's probably there's probably five hundred songs written every single day on Music Row. It would be cool if you could explain what a standard day for you kind of looks like when you're you know like say it's a Monday. What yeah. are you what are you getting up and doing? What does it look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so for me, I I might get up and. Sp- and be ready to kind of jump on the emails by about 9.30. Um, and I'll do maybe an hour of emails. And there's stuff like scheduling is important. You know, people are asking, your publisher goes, hey, do you want to work with so-and-so? And you check out their music and you check out their bio. and Or do you want to write for this project? So you're doing a lot of like listening to songs um, and trying to find people to collaborate with and help fill up your calendar. So your publishers are doing... Um, at first they were doing hundred percent of my calendars and saying, here's who we think you should work with. And, and I've been with Warner for six years now. So, um, I've been kind of taking over a bit more about, you know, who do I like working with? And they trust my judgment on who I like working with, but, but they'll still send some suggestions. So I'll spend the first hour kind of going through admin and things like that. And then songwriting sessions start at 11 o'clock in Nashville. <laughs> okay. So well, every songwriting session starts at 11. That's so cool. Pr- pretty much. Yeah. There's usually a songwriting session from like 11 till 2. Okay. And then there's usually some people do doubles and there's going to be a second one from like 3.30 until 6. And uh, so some if you want to get like two songs in, you'll do like 11 till 2, take a little lunch break, and then you'll do like 2.30 or 3 until 6 o'clock. Um, and everybody's done by 6. It's like a real um, family-orientated schedule. It's a real kind of uh, 9 to 5 lifestyle uh, whereas LA was very much like wouldn't get started till 3 p.m., 4 p.m., and you'd be going till 10 o'clock at night. You know, it was pretty standard. So uh, that's my day, and I'll finish by by five, um, and that includes recording the song as well. So you've got to write the song. It usually takes about an hour and a half, two hours, and then you got to record the song, yeah. which will take another hour or so. Wow, it sounds like yeah, kind of sounds like a 
well it is a proper job but it kind of sounds almost like that kind of like nine to five kind of thing and then you and then you stop yeah. and everyone go out for a big party i guess maybe <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it does i mean nashville's definitely a drinking uh, got a drinking culture i'd say and uh you know there's even a big old bar at, at warner chapel that you can go and just like help yourself whenever you want you've got to you've got to try and uh be disciplined with all that because it's just so easy to get in, get involved with the whole go and have a drink after every every session yeah. and uh it can catch up to you very quickly yeah, i bet you know? it can are you ever writing songs on your own are you always writing with other people mainly you know it's funny everybody's different um I find that I've written some of my best songs alone. Um, so I try and fit that in, but I actually find it very difficult to get the motivation to sit down on my own. If I have a day off and I have an empty day in my calendar, I should probably sit down and write a hundred percenter, but I find it uh, harder to get, be motivated to do that. For some reason, it's a lot easier when you go into a studio and there's two or three other people ready to collaborate and make music. Everyone has ideas and it's high energy and coffee's going. And uh, it's just, it's a lot easier to write a song like that for me. So, um, but I think some of my best songs have been, have been a hundred percenters. Um, I wrote a Lucas Graham song, which was pretty much a hundred percenter. And that was one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite sessions. Um, I say pretty much Lucas changed a few, a few bits on on the verse when he when he finally cut the song but it was a lot to do i think it's for me i like to sit down and picture the whole song before i start and sometimes that can get a little bit blurry if you've got lots of people and loads of people's ideas um but in the long term i think it's good to have other ideas and other people to bounce ideas off of you know yeah the collaboration side of it is so fun isn't it and it, it makes it, it makes really the is. writing process kind of an enjoyable social experience as well rather than it kind of it can be quite lonely I think if you're on your own but that's interesting you think you've written it some is. of your best songs how do you know what how do you know because it's interesting that your first one that got cut the patient uh you know the Charlie Puth song it's interesting that that was um the song that you wrote in just a quick hour long session before you flew back to London and you didn't even remember it <laughs> you know <laughs> it's it's interesting isn't it I don't know yeah. it's um it's funny yeah it is um, interesting it's sometimes the second song is you, you've all of the kind of pressure of we got to write a song it's got to be good um and you're a little bit afraid to say no i don't think that's a good idea what about this you're just like yeah i love it let's go with it so once you knock the first song out and you come back to and and you think look we've got 45 minutes let's just come up with something real quick just a chorus and if it's good enough we'll do a verse but we've already got something so there's no pressure often the second song is where the the good the really special ones come from um yeah I mean, for everyone listening, Fraser's written songs for so many different people. Uh, just like off the top of my head, Charlie Puth, Lucas Graham, Michael Bublé, Flo Rida, Ronan Keating, all these different people. Let's, for example, take the Michael Bublé song that you've just written, uh, Baby I'll Wait. And that, that's on his latest album, right? Right, yeah. Um, can, you, uh, can you give us just a breakdown of how that whole thing happened from start to finish? Because I think this is so interesting of how a song starts to how it ends up on a finished album. Absolutely. So I remember it was kind of in the middle of the pandemic and everybody had gone from working in writer's rooms to writing over Zoom. And I'd had a couple of rough Zoom sessions and nothing. there's nothing more awkward than sitting at a Zoom session and everybody, and you, with people you've never met before. And you're trying to write a song and no, you're not coming up with anything, right? It's really rough. 
So I remember having a few of those thinking, okay, I've got to be prepared um, and just have something in my back pocket. So I, 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 I'll never forget it. I was stood outside my apartment getting some fresh air in LA. I was living down in, by Redondo Beach in, uh, right, on the, right on the water. And all of a sudden it was like this kind of, this baseline came to me and it was like, boom, 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 And it was this like up-tempo six, eight, boom, 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 And I hadn't heard something like that in a while. I thought that's such a nice groove. I wonder, um, I wonder if I can come up with something in that, in that vein. I remember having this melody and honestly the lyric kind of came with came to uh at the same time and i literally sprinted inside and uh had just this feeling about this idea and honestly to this day i haven't sprinted inside thinking i gotta get this idea down and i just kind of knew it was it was a good one and i remember sitting in my guitar for like 15 minutes and jamming through it and it didn't take very long i think within 15 minutes i had the, the chorus. And I remember thinking, this next bit's really important, right? Mm. Who do I bring this idea to? Because um, collaboration is so important in this industry. And I remember looking at my calendar and in three weeks from that day, I was, I had a session with a guy called Jason Reeves, who's one of the most genius lyricists I've ever worked with. He wrote Bubbly for Colby, um, Colby Calais. That's a great song. That's such a He's had so many amazing hits and he just speaks in poetry. He's like a freak of nature lyricist. And I was also, the third was a guy called Nathan Chapman and he's known for producing every Taylor Swift album up until 1989. And, uh, also an incredible lyricist, multi-instrumentalist. And I just knew that Nathan's production style mixed with Jason's lyric, lyric ideas um, but, uh, and my kind of rough idea here, this chorus I've written, um, we would just come up with magic. They would be the perfect team to help me finish yeah. this idea. So it was tough not to bring it up in other sessions, honestly, because I had it in my back pocket, but, and I had a couple of like slow songwriting starts in some other sessions. And I was like, Ooh, this uh, could really, like, oh, this would yeah. really get me out of the shit right now. But I'm, I'm going to save it. I had to save it. And and I couldn't wait for this session. So I finally got in with these guys and uh, Nathan and I had already had one song. We'd written one song that had a bit of success. Um, funny enough, uh, a song I wrote with Mickey Guyton called Black Like Me. And it was a big song for her. It ended up being performed at the Grammys. And we had a real... Uh, click when we just loved working together and we really bounced off off each other really well so i remember bringing it in on the guitar and singing it to both of them and they were really excited about the idea um and jason immediately flipped the lyric like instantly i can't remember exactly how my first version went but it went something like baby i'll wait i'll wait you know that i'll wait for you no um don't care how long it takes right? Don't care how long it takes. And Jason said, what about forever and a day instead of don't care how long it takes. And it just sang so much better. And then I think we yeah. saved that. Don't care how long it takes for the next bit. No, we're meant to be together. I don't care how long it takes. And that was Nathan who kind of threw that 
lyric in on the on the B section of the chorus. So it was a real collaboration. Um, we had written it in like an hour and a half. It was pretty quick. Um, and my job was to send Nathan a vocal and a guitar. So I thought, wow, I'm going to give him loads of room to do his thing. So I did one electric guitar take through, one vocal with, I didn't, don't even think I did any harmony. I just did one vocal and one a guitar. And I did some of these little offbeat chucks in doom, chick, doom. I didn't even give him the bass line, but I suggested it in my guitar part and he kind of knew what I was trying to do. And so he laid down bass, Rhodes, BVs, live drums. He has the whole setup in his house and he put it all down. Yeah. And I remember him sending it back to me and it just, just felt so special. Um, and I sent it into Warner and I had no idea actually that um, Buble was doing an album. And I had no idea he was looking for a song, um, but he was working with um, uh, John Bellion at the time and Michael Pollock, who are like and and Ryan Tedder, um, like the three big cats in LA who are on all the records. And uh, he, I I think it was the only outside song he took um, on his record that was like an original song. He does he did a bunch, he did some standards and he wrote a couple with some with you know ryan tedder and uh but baby i'll wait was the only outside pitch on the record and uh it was produced um it was produced up from scratch he didn't take any of the any of the parts but i remember getting it sent back and finally hearing buble's vocal on it and uh he pretty much sang it like note for note he followed every inflection that i that i did on the day and that was probably the the coolest part of the whole experience was like hearing one of my idols um just to just like the song and apparently he listened to it for two three weeks in the car and he played it to his family and everybody loved it and he was on, they were all on board with it and uh it was a really amazing email uh to get from from my publishers publisher saying hey buble loves this he keeps playing it and i think he's gonna record it and then finally getting getting the the new version from greg wells who ended up producing the entire album amazing is there kind of a thing where you kiss goodbye to the song, you just send it off in an email and then it's done and then you just wait? Is that what literally happens with a lot of these things? You know, you always got to have a backup plan. It's like, I'm, I love my, that, that version that I did still so much. And I think I'm going to put it out eventually on my own album and I'm going to release it. Um, so yeah, I do have attachment to that original version. But, you know, I think I gave this example at, at the talk the other day and it's, you know, I love... I love how Carol King can still go and play You Got a Friend at her shows and and uh, Dolly Parton can sing I Will Always Love You. But even though they had both given their big hits away, um, they, they a song is supposed to be covered multiple times. I mean, look at Buble's album. He's, he's singing some classics on there that have been recorded 20, 30, 40, 50 times. And I, I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with giving a song um, letting a song, letting another artist record your song, um, mm. putting their own spin on it. It doesn't mean that you're giving it away. And I think that's a huge misconception. I think in this, in this industry that we're in, you know, people go, how could you possibly give your, give your songs away? And I don't see it as giving your songs away. You know, I just see it as an opportunity to, to yeah. get a song up and out and try and 
get that ball rolling you get try and write an evergreen that everybody wants to record you know it's amazing michael buble wants to do a cover of your song <laughs> <laughs> i mean i wouldn't i don't know if i put it like that this is just a cover michael it's just a cover <laughs> yeah. no, i'm joking i'm joking man i'm joking i mean michael buble is amazing and i think that's so cool with that song i've been listening to it actually since that talk you oh, did yeah. and it's just so it's so great like it's so catchy and it's it's funny, isn't it? It's there are there, there are things I've noticed when I because I've listened to lots of your songs since then. Um, there's something about your writing that is very well. It's it's a bit like you said the other day. I can sing back your choruses after I've heard them, mm. you know, and I don't need to hear them that many times, and I can sing the whole chorus back. And that's such a weird thing because you can't do that with every song. And do you have? I mean, I guess if you knew this, maybe um, you'd, you'd have the answer to all your problems. But what is it that makes that song? Or any song catchy do you have any idea or is it just kind of a feeling is it a gut feeling uh, yeah what makes a song catchy i mean i think there's just two ways of of writing a song and i think if you're right if i was to write myself a whole album i don't think i'd do a whole 13 songs of hookiest choruses catchiest melody i can possibly think of i would want to have a beginning middle and an end and a real arc to my album but if i'm trying to write songs for other people um you know, I'm sure that a lot of these artists can write their own album tracks, right? So all of a sudden, and also it's, if you get an album cut, you're not going to make much money off of it. So you've got to think a little bit like, okay, I got to, I got to try and write a hooky, catchy chorus that's going to be a single. So you're thinking single, yeah. which is usually, okay, so you're aiming for a radio, you're trying to get, you're trying to get the mums in the back to sing along after, after the first chorus. So I think that's where my head goes. It's like, how am I going to write something that people are going to remember. Um, you haven't got people's attention span for very long, um, especially nowadays. And um, yeah, just that's been my focus. I don't, how do you write a catchy chorus? I mean, I wish I could put it into words for you, but I think it's just aiming at something that is memorable and easy to sing along, you know? Mm. It's really interesting. A lot of people are saying now that the way songs are going, and I don't know if this is true or not, actually, um, but they want to put the chorus right at the beginning so it hits you know you know things like TikTok, and you just want to get straight to the chorus but a lot of your songs still have the whole kind of more old-fashioned kind of song structure i don't mean old-fashioned but do you know what i mean yeah, the kind of verse like, first chorus first right break, you right, know, all right. of that do you have any thoughts on that are you ever encouraged to write songs that go straight in with the kind of climax it's funny because when you pitch a song like nine times out of ten you'll put the chorus first and then it doesn't mean that the final version will have the chorus first, but if you give them the chorus first, it's like, or half the chorus, you know what I mean? Just give yeah. them like the first two lines of the chorus at the beginning of the song and then straight into the verse. So for pitching, it's actually really helpful if you can give, give the hooky bit right at the top. Um, okay. Or just the pre or just the post chorus, like a little ooh or something, whatever it is that I like, it's good to sprinkle a bit of it, but I do find that I'm more of a classic songwriter and, um, just based upon my influences, you know, growing up in a household where there's a lot of James Taylor and there's a lot of Stevie Wonder and there's Earth, Wind and Fire and just all the kind of like old school classic songs are, are where they're all coming from. And uh, I can't help but, but write those types of songs. When I, when I listen to kind of songs that are, I mean, Spotify does this thing where you can go and you can see all like the top songs at the moment and it's kind of cool. And it's interesting how songs are changing in, in various ways. Do you ever feel like a kind of pressure to kind of write what's popular now and what people are listening to and the kind of styles and mm. 
or do you just kind of feel that actually I'm just going to stay true to my roots and keep writing these songs and see what happens? What's kind of your view on that? Do you feel like you have to move with what's current? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely tried. I can tell you, like I've spent, I spent two and a half years living in LA trying to change the way I write to suit the industry. All of a sudden I was forced to listen to what's current, whereas before I just made music I loved. And it just, for me, it just doesn't work, you know? trying to write songs that are cool and fit the current climate um, just don't, just didn't work for me. And, and it was the times where I sort of just flew through in threw in the, the white flag and just thought, Oh, I'm, I give up. I'm just going to write songs that make me feel something again. And those just happen to be the ones that, that people are interested in, you know? So I think that's actually a good thing. It's like focus purely on writing the, the song that makes you feel something. Um, and then, don't worry about the result of the song uh, because yeah. that's completely out of your hands. Uh, out of your control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you can apply that to anything. It's like an audition for, you know, it's like, stop worrying about, am I going to get the gig or not? That is going to be a result of how well you do in the audition. So just focus on the, the task at hand and everything will happen as a result of, uh, of that task. If as long as you don't stop worrying about the, the outcome, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Fraser, it's been so amazing chatting to you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put together a little Spotify playlist of songs you've worked on and songs that you've done. And I'm going to put a link to that in the description. I think that'd be really cool for people to hear, to check out your music. That would be amazing. Um, what um, I always ask this at the end of kind of every interview I do, what's kind of next for you? Is there something, I mean, I know you've got some amazing songs coming out with various artists, mm. some of which might be, um, sort of top secret but is what what's kind of next on the horizon for you and what is there something you haven't done yet that you're like wow I'd love to do this well honestly I feel like there's a new chapter coming I'm I'm finally starting to I'm gonna put out some of my own music and uh, I've never really put out my own music and that was always my initial plan was to just focus on my, an album for me and my own music and I and I've kind of pivoted the last five years of for writing for other people but as a result i've just got such a big catalog of songs that i'm finally putting out my first single and that is coming on the 6th of october and it's called fever so there's a pre-link on my instagram facebook and everywhere else so I'm, I'm trying my best to to just get it up and out and start that ball rolling and i'm hoping that once i put one out there'll be another and another and i'm just excited for this next chapter of, uh, of original music coming out oh man it's great People should go and definitely check out your original music. I remember you put out a song a little while ago. Um, I want to talk about you. Yeah, I remember that, is that such one. A, that's an absolute banger, man. Thank that is, you, That's man. got to have another... I that's appreciate got a, it. That much, I hope that's in your catalogue for it, people to um, oh, potentially have. You know, it's funny because I love that song so much and uh, I put... That is on Spotify as a live... So I try... I, I actually do have a song, a couple songs out on Spotify and I'm, I'm calling this first song, this one I'm putting out on October 6th is my debut single because it's the first kind of studio recording that I've done really top to bottom. But those that was like a little live EP that I put out, I think it's over 10 years ago now, but Talk About You is still one of my favorite songs and I'm so glad that that's up there. Um, it, just, it just defines the beginning of the journey for me, yeah. you know? That's so great. I'm going to put a link to that in the description because oh, it's an absolute. I hope so, um, man. Thank you. It is a tune. There's like so many influences in there, and I just, I just love it. I <laughs> oh, think it's great, man. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Uh, whereabouts can people go and check out your music? Best place to check out 
Um, my music is on my Instagram. I keep people up to date on my Instagram mainly. Um, but I've also got uh, a, a playlist on Spotify, which if you just type in written by Fraser Churchill on Spotify, you'll see all of my songs that I've written for other people. So um, I'll happy, happily link you to that as well if you'd like to check that out. That would be wicked. Yeah, I'll put that. I'll put a link to that in the um, episode description. Fraser, Amazing. thank you so much. It's been great chatting. Thank you so much for having me. Take care, Adam. All the best. Thanks once again to Fraser for coming on the podcast. It's always so much fun to catch up with him and he's doing so many amazing things. I've put lots of links in the episode description. Go and check out his music, particularly his song Fever, which is coming out very soon. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back on Thursday. Do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I will see you in the next episode.